You're listening to The Virtuous Mind, a podcast from Providence Christian College that discusses all facets of the human experience and the liberal arts from a biblical worldview. I'm your host, Dr. David E. Alexander. What is Reformed theology? And why does it matter? A number of years ago, there appeared to be a surge of interest and even adoption of Reformed theology. Popular and secular magazines even covered the young, restless, and Reformed phenomenon. But there is some reason to think that the surge of interest in Reformed theology was falsely or misleadingly so-called. Perhaps the heightened interest was in certain aspects of Reformed theology, but other crucial aspects of the theology were ignored in ways that may have proved detrimental to the movement. For example, while the theology surrounding salvation proper is incredibly important, that theology is, in the hands of the reformers and their heirs, grounded in an entire biblical theology and a theology of worship separating out the theology of salvation proper from its wider and deeper context can result in something far narrower and perhaps even shallower than reformed theology in this episode i talk with dr jonathan master president of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and author of reformed theology the fourth book in the Blessings of the Faith series published by P&R. This series celebrates Reformed doctrine, heritage, and practice. Dr. Master clearly and succinctly explains why getting a broader articulation of Reformed theology is so important while discussing the centrality of worship, public and private, and the blessing and beauty of the Reformed tradition. Dr. Master, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, David. It's great to be with you. You've got a book that just came out through Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing, PNR. The title of the book is Reformed Theology. Maybe tell us a little bit about the intent behind the book. Who's the audience? Who do you think this book is written for? There's a series of books that PNR have been working on. Jason Halopoulos, who's a friend, is editing that series. It's called the Blessings of the Faith series. And they're intended to be little introductory books, maybe for someone who's new to the church or perhaps someone who's been in the church, but there are certain aspects of the theology of the church that they don't understand or that they're not familiar with. So the Blessings of the Faith series covers a whole range of topics. They approached me about doing a broader topic, Reformed Theology. And when I was writing it, I was thinking about someone who might not have any familiarity with it, with the topic, with the idea. Probably most people who pick up the book have heard the term reformed or reformed theology, and that can actually be an asset or a liability. But in this case, I assumed that they had heard the word, but weren't exactly sure what it all meant because it is used in a number of different ways. And so that's who I had in mind. I will tell you this, it's been really encouraging, the reception that we've seen to the book. I think it's actually reached people who really do have a familiarity with Reformed theology, but this has helped crystallize and maybe help them explain it in perhaps somewhat simpler terms. As you know, it's only about 100 pages long, so it's not an in-depth treatise by any means. I did read the book and loved it. 
One of the things that I was hoping the book would do, I think it did, answered the question, what is Reformed theology in a pretty succinct way? We could spend 300 pages on answering that question and walk away with a lot of knowledge, but still not be able to know how to answer that question succinctly. I think your book does that really, really nicely. Could you do that for us now? What is Reformed theology in a few sentences, a paragraph? The way I defined it was this. I defined it in terms of a theology that encompasses what are often called the five solas of the Reformation. They came later than the Reformation, but I think they accurately describe the emphases of the Protestant Reformation. So the five solas of the Reformation with all their implications, which is a key caveat. That's the first thing. The second thing that I mentioned was that I believe Reformed theology really is covenant theology, historically speaking. Now that is contested today and there are people who'd use the term Reformed to describe themselves who wouldn't hold to a covenantal framework when they come to their Bibles, but I think that is essential to Reformed theology. And then the third thing I mentioned is that it's expressed in a historic creed or confession, and that's an attempt to tie it into the history, to speak to the historians, but not just to speak to the historians, but also to address the fact that this is a church theology. This is a theology that is organized around and codified in public confessions of faith, which then guide the worship and practice of branches of Christ's church. Would you walk us through briefly the five solas that seem to form an essential component of Reformed theology? Sure. Sola Scriptura indicates that the ultimate source, the ground of our authority, is God's Word. And that's because the ground of our authority is God himself. And so God has spoken in and through his Word, and we want to test every doctrine, every teaching, every practice by the Word of God. That sets it apart from other sources of authority. There are particular times in church history where the authority, for instance, of the Pope or the authority of the magisterium has taken precedence over the authority of Scripture. And the Reformers were clear that the Scripture alone is what they would have called our norming norm. That's our final source of authority. Moving from sola scriptura, sola gratia, which is that salvation is by grace alone, that our salvation is a gracious work of God in our lives, that God has chosen those who would be saved, but God has done so in a way that demonstrates his grace. So it's not by works, lest any man should boast, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians. So scripture alone, grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone. And I should say this, the sola is important here, because what we're actually saying is not simply Bible, grace, faith. We're saying the scriptures alone, grace alone, not with any admixture of works, and faith alone. Faith is the alone instrument by which we grasp a hold of the promises of Jesus Christ. And that actually leads us then to solus Christus, Christ alone, that it is Christ to whom we offer our worship. It is through Christ that we approach God the Father, and through Christ alone that we approach God the Father, and it's in Christ that we receive all the benefits and blessings of salvation. And then that leads to the final one, which is sole deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, that the purpose of history is ultimately the glory of God and redeeming a people through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, if you read Calvin's description of why the Reformation was necessary, he says, first of all, it's necessary in order to restore true worship in the church 
church. Alongside that, so to speak, is to restore the doctrine of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the doctrine of salvation, how a man is reconciled to God. It's so striking because we don't think about that very often, that actually central to our understanding or to the Reformed understanding of theology is the restoration of true worship. And I think sole deo gloria, as much as any of the five solos, really grasps that clearly and it ties it in with the fact that our worship should be guided by the Word of God, sola scriptura. Reformed theology makes worship central. The Reformed tradition is so rich, it's so deep, it is intellectually stimulating and gratifying. It elevates the majesty and the wonder of God in so many ways, but worship as central, I think, is something that maybe people don't often associate with the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition, since it actually makes worship central to everything we do in our life, makes it maybe a little harder for people to sort of recognize when the worship is happening. Am I right in thinking that there is this maybe caricature that people don't associate the centrality of worship with Reformed theology? Any idea why that caricature might have emerged? I think you're right that a lot of people today who grab that label for themselves, for their theology, first of all, they may have a sort of truncated version of Reformed theology that they're grabbing a hold of, but they grab a hold of it and yet worship isn't central. In terms of the reason behind it, it's really hard for me to say because it would have been absolutely baffling to the early reformers or to the Westminster divines or to any of these men to whom we look when we're thinking about Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I think it's fair to say the contemporary church in general is not particularly thoughtful about public worship. There's this kind of assumption that as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it directly, we can do it and we should do it if it makes us feel in some way connected to spiritual things. And that, of course, is not at all the Reformed view of worship to begin with. If you think about, for instance, the the Westminster Assembly, Shorter Catechism 1, the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's such a clarity there about the importance and centrality of public worship of the Lord on the Lord's day in the way that the Lord has prescribed. I, I, I don't think it's that theologically rich an error. I actually think the error is what David Wells said in, in a number of places, but most maybe succinctly in No Place for Truth, evangelical theology has lost the weightiness of God. I really don't know that we're actually taking this all of life is worship thing very seriously either. I think it's actually more that we're taking none of it seriously because we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves and our individual choices. I think we use the all of life is worship kind of thing as an excuse, at least that's my read on it, not in the way that Shorter Catechism 1 means, and then we use that to diminish the importance of gathered public worship. The second component that you mentioned in your definition of Reformed theology is an emphasis on the covenants. Reformed theology, as you mentioned, is sometimes even used synonymously with covenantal theology. Maybe just a brief overview of what that means. What covenant theology gives for us is a framework to understand God's work of redemption and even God's work of creation. 
human beings are in a covenantal relationship with God of some kind. By nature, after the fall, we're in a covenant of works with God, which requires perfect obedience, which no one, of course, can satisfy. And so it's really a covenant that leads to destruction and death. Adam himself was in a covenant of works, though without sin, and he himself did sin. But God, in his really astonishing, marvelous grace, has been at work to redeem a people for himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that through what's often called the covenant of grace. And the way in which the covenant of grace unfolds is through successive biblical covenants. So you see the terms of a covenant unfolded with Noah, and then you see it unfolded in a majestic and highly significant way with Abraham, and then with Moses, and with David, and then the prophets reveal, Moses himself reveals, but the prophets expand on this idea of a new covenant. And you know, if you think about even Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, what does he use to describe what's going on there? It's, it's the cup is the new covenant in my blood. He talks in covenantal language, and then the New Testament's replete with that covenantal language. So it's a way of understanding the scriptures and the continuity between Old and New Testament and God's plan of salvation through the Old and New Testament as it's revealed after the fall. And then it's also a way of understanding the nature of human beings as created in the image of God in this covenantal relationship with God. And going along with that, it's often called federal theology because Adam is the federal head of the human race. And those who are in Adam die in Adam, but those who are in Christ, the last Adam, as Paul puts it, are reconciled to God and are ultimately glorified in Christ. And so, that's the kind of beauty of the tapestry of the scriptures. So it's a biblical theology, but it's also a systematic way of unfolding the doctrines of salvation. One of the things that attracted me, I think, to Reformed theology and covenantal theology was that it provided, I think, a way of seeing the relationship between the unfolding of all of the scriptures, the unfolding of God's revelation of his plan for salvation in these series of covenants, which culminate, of course, in the new covenant. The covenant of grace and the unfolding of the covenant of grace is primarily a revelation of God's grace and primarily a revelation of God's promises that culminate in Jesus Christ that I would see as the biblical emphasis in the unfolding of the covenants. Christ talks about us being friends with God, yeah. and I almost want to emphasize that. I don't see it emphasized as much as maybe I, I think it ought to be. I think it's really good to emphasize our union with Christ and how integral that is to our membership in the covenant of grace. That overarching idea, friendship with God or fellowship with God, I think is one of the great meta-themes yeah. of the Bible. You start out with Adam and Eve in the garden where they have this fellowship with God. He walks among them. At the end, what you have in the book of Revelation, in that vision that John has of the new heavens and the new earth, is much the same thing, only on an increased and unbreakable level. And so I agree with you, that presence with God, and it's so fundamental in the Mosaic Covenant because all these Levitical laws are about how the people can commune with God and can approach God and worship, can give thanks to God, can have that thanksgiving accepted, can deal with the problem of their sin in the context of God being in the camp. And so that big theme, I think, is indeed a big theme of the Covenant of Grace. 
you know, I want to make sure that we cover the third component of Reformed theology that you mentioned, and that's the confessional component. When we're talking about the confessions, we are implicitly referring to confessions coming out of the Reformation, right? We're talking about 16th, 17th century documents that a lot of Reformed churches still use, right, as founding documents for those denominations. So why the confessional component? Why add that to the other two? Yeah, it's a different kind of marker, but it's an attempt to ground the term Reformed and Reformed theology in some kind of historical context. I'm not suggesting that it's an exclusively historical term. I think there's theological meat on the bone, so to speak, which is why I start with the solas and then go to covenant theology. But it is also undeniably a historical term. You can't just make up what we mean by Reformed. When you look at the Reformation and when you look at the Reformed churches as they grew up in various contexts and in various countries, almost invariably what you see is among the very first things they did, among the very first ways they articulated their theology, was in public creeds and confessions. And there are reasons for that. The reasons have to do with public proclamation of the truths that they hold, transparency about those things. They want to let everyone know, this is what we believe. They also serve as a way of making sure that the church remains faithful, and they in themselves creating creeds and confessions is actually obedience to the scriptures because within the scriptures we see patterns of sound words. We see reference made to creedal statements. Every church in the stream of the Reformation has publicly professed their faith in creedal documents and united around those. And this is a way, not just of following their lead, but of connecting ourselves in some way to that historical stream. One of the themes that emerges out of your book that I thought was interesting and was that you emphasize the blessing of Reformed theology. I'm not sure I've seen that theme a ton in books that are like yours. What prompted you to include that? And maybe you could share a little bit about what the blessing of Reformed theology is. Well, I didn't come up with the idea myself. This was part of a series called The Blessings of the Faith, and so the idea behind it was to make sure to include that accent on the fact that these aren't simply truths, maybe even important truths, but they're important truths that are a blessing. Part of that was suggested to me by the series, but I found it to be immensely rich and helpful to think about because I would consider these things a blessing, but I wanted to challenge myself to try to communicate to others why I think they are a blessing. And I think if we go through each of the elements, each of the three elements, there are different blessings that emerge. I think the solas encapsulate some of the beautiful central truths about the Bible, particularly when you talk about the two topics we referenced earlier, worship and salvation. And the solas, I think, wonderfully guide us in the right direction there. Plus, I think they're biblical, and it's always a blessing to be in line with Scripture. In terms of covenant theology, again, zeroing in on the blessings of salvation, but also it provides a wonderful framework for understanding the unfolding narrative of Scripture. We want to be whole Bible Christians, and we want to understand the whole of God's revelation. We know that all Scripture is inspired and profitable. And so because of that, having a framework to see what God's doing is just not only a blessing for coming to your Bible and working your way through it, but also it enables you to revel in the 
gracious, eternal plan of God that culminates and centers on Jesus Christ. That's the other thing I think covenant theology does. It really centers you on the Lord Jesus Christ, where all these things come to their fruition. And then with respect to creeds and confessions, I think they're a blessing in many ways. I think they're a blessing because they allow you to publicly state your faith in a clear way. They tie you to the past, and they also help you teach for the future. That's another thing that can't be missed. When these creeds and confessions were formed, often in the crucible of great strife and difficulty under duress, they were accompanied by catechisms. And the reason for that was, we want to teach others these things. We want to teach our children these things. We want to teach new believers that grounds them in the totality of a robust representation of what the Bible teaches. Reformed theology is a blessing because it emphasizes the centrality of worship, which of course is the purpose of our lives. And you know, you don't have to go very far in your Bible to see the importance of that. When you turn to Genesis chapter 4, what's the presenting issue at first between Cain and Abel? It's a matter of offering true worship to God. And so right out of the gate, right after the fall, what you see is, first of all, this human understanding that we must worship someone. We do worship someone. We all do. And this distinction between those who worship God according to what he has commanded and those who do not. Of course, that snowballs because of Cain's jealousy and the sin that lies within him, and he murders Abel. But it's important to realize that all started with God not finding Cain's offering acceptable to him. And, you know, when you read the Bible through that lens, which you realize, whether it's Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire, or Jeroboam setting up golden calves, or Ananias and Sapphira, or on and on we could go. So much of the prophets is taken up with this. So many of Paul's letters are taken up with this. This should be a fundamental concern. And I actually think the fact that it's not a fundamental concern says something profoundly disturbing about our day. Because in most sane ages, people who understand something about themselves as contingent beings say, we need to offer worship and we need to do it the way that's acceptable. And when you're worshiping the God of the Bible, he has graciously told us what's acceptable to him. But that should be a high priority for us because it's certainly a high priority in the scriptures. Again, maybe another blessing of Reformed theology is that I think in Reformed theology, you kind of get a both and. I can be friends with God, as we were talking about earlier. And yet, as you're pointing out, as your book points out, as the history of the Reformed tradition points out, the centrality of corporate worship, the centrality of the church being a member of the body of Christ is as emphasized, if not more so, than my individual religion. So you get both and. It's not either or, and we've fallen into a kind of massive either or dichotomy. I'm a Christian simply in virtue of the fact that my ethnicity ties me to a particular region of the world that is also historically Christian, or I've got this individual relationship with Jesus or with God, and nobody can tell me how it's supposed to look. I couldn't agree more. When you read the best expressions of Reformed theology, and, and I'll even say, just when you read your Bible, you see both of those things at work. You see, of course, individuals are, through faith, united to Jesus Christ. And what a glorious truth it is that the Apostle Paul can say, the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. And yet, those individuals who are united to Christ through faith, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, are gathering to worship the Lord in the way that he has prescribed for them to worship, and in the New Testament context in particular, uniting themselves to a regional and local church. You've been listening to The Virtuous Mind, a podcast from Providence Christian College. 
The mission of Providence Christian College as a reformed Christian institution is to equip students to be firmly grounded in biblical truth, thoroughly educated in the liberal arts, and fully engaged in their church, their community, and the world for the glory of God and for service to humanity. We'd love to have you visit our campus. Providence Christian College is now accepting applications for the upcoming semester. Contact an admissions counselor to learn more. Visit ProvidenceCC.edu.